you could find Zechariah right now. Um, if you have, obviously, a digital Bible, it's a little different. But Zechariah is not the easiest place to find um, in your Bible. But today's passage of Scripture comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And Amy's going to come up and read for us God's Word. Let's stand together. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This past week, I was at a sandwich shop, and the building started shaking. I don't know if any of you experienced the earthquake on, I don't know what day of the week it was, it was a 4.1 centered in San Ramon. I actually wasn't here, but my daughter was in, in this building, and she said the whole building shook. <laughs> and uh, we spent a lot of money actually retrofitting this space so that it could be, quote, earthquake ready. And I think if you've ever been upstairs, or maybe you will hear it, you'll hear the kids stomping around, or if you are anywhere near one of the offices, and if you're in the office and just someone's walking, the office starts shaking. This is with someone walking, let alone with a 4.1 earthquake. But that, you know, when I was sitting in this sandwich shop waiting for my sandwich to get ready and the earthquake happened, you could see the startled look on everyone who was in the room. I felt it myself. There was this temptation to want to dive underneath the table. And you know, I thought it was interesting that in the midst of the past two years and everything that has happened in our world, especially when it comes to COVID, you realize that earthquakes show you that you're never truly safe, no matter how much you try to, quote, stay safe. But all of that can be undone in a moment's notice. See, here's the thing about safety is that safety always is in the context of how you and I are able to control our safety. We want to provide a safe environment for our children, for our family, and we go to great lengths to do so. Obviously, again, COVID has showed us what type of lengths that we go to to remain safe. But one thing that I learned is that apart from God, you're never truly safe. I was on a missions trip with a group of guys actually from this church. We went to China and we uh, were reading together as sort of our own training manual, John Calvin's Institutes. And as we were reading it together, I came across this passage from John Calvin that I thought was so insightful on this topic. This is what he says. Embark upon a ship. You are one step away from death. Mount a horse. If one foot slips, your life is imperiled. 
go through the city streets, you are subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roofs. But if you try to shut yourself up in a walled garden, seemingly delightful, there a serpent sometimes lies, lies hidden. Your house, continually in danger of fire, threatens in the daytime to impoverish you, at night even to collapse upon you. Now, John Calvin, I think many people, when they think of the Institutes and think of John Calvin, they think of this you know, stern theologian writing a book of theology. But that's not what the Institutes were. The Institutes of Calvin were an apologetic. They were a defense for Christians who were being persecuted, especially in France, French Huguenots. And as Calvin was thinking about how do you respond to a group of people who are being persecuted, his answer was, you have to know the truth. You have to understand it deeply in order to withstand some of the most difficult trials that a person can face, including the possibility of losing your own life for the sake of Christ. And so as he writes this, and he's writing about the providence of God, he's really asking the question, are you truly safe if you were secure in your house, comfortable, before a warm fire in his day, or maybe watching television, and everything just seems normal? Earthquakes show us you are not safe. You know, we were locked down for two and a half, maybe, uh, what, a, a year, something along those lines, off and on, off and on, and all in the name of safety. I look out and I see all of you wearing a mask. And we've been talking about vaccines and booster shots and all in the name of safety. Now, there is nothing wrong with doing what we can to apply certain standards of safety. But when we place our ultimate hope in these standards, we are losing sight of who it is who truly keeps us safe. Because as John Calvin says, even if you are walled up in a garden seemingly delightful, suddenly a serpent comes. Drive down a road with your family along the way, coming home from a nice dinner, and suddenly someone comes, jumps the median into your lane, smashes head on to you, a drunk driver. See, there was nothing you're doing wrong, and yet it's deadly for you. Safety is not in a structure of a building or in a vaccine especially when you face earthquakes and snakes and all sorts of terrible things. A baby can be sleeping in a crib, all is well, and suddenly just dies in the middle of the night. Safety is a mirage. Without God, safety is no safe place at all. And that's the point of Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It shows us that there's only one true safe place, and it's in the presence of God's Spirit. So in chapter four, verses one through six, we're gonna look at three main points. First, we'll look at the context of the passage. Second, we'll look at the contrast of the passage, especially in verse six. And then third, we'll draw some conclusions from this passage. First, the context. If you've ever read the book of Zechariah, and I'm assuming that very few of you have. For those of you who have perhaps read through the whole Bible, you went through Zechariah and you thought, this is a very weird book. I'm just going to try to skim it and then get to the Gospels where it makes a lot more sense. See, because Zechariah has a lot of images, a lot of strange imagery, and it just seems so mysterious, just seems incomprehensible. 
But the context, I hope, helps you to realize, oh, I get it. I understand what Zechariah is all about. And Zechariah is actually a really comforting book. It helps us to say, not just for Zechariah's day, but for us to say, I feel safe reading Zechariah. First, a little bit about Zechariah himself. He was a high priest. Well, he was a priest. And according to chapter 1, verse 7, he was the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, who were priests. And so he was very familiar with the temple. His family lineage was all about the temple, being in the presence of God. And they saw a lot of the instruments of the temple. And one of those instruments was a lampstand, which we see in this vision. Zechariah also was returning from Persia and from Babylon. Now, just to a quick scan, let me just go through biblical history super fast. Remember Moses? He brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. They were enslaved for over 400 years. So they wander the desert for 40 years. They come to the promised land in Canaan, and they're given this land by the Lord. God sets up, they have these judges, they pass by, and then God sets up the first king, Saul. He fails miserably. He doesn't trust God. Then David, who was a man after God's own heart, is installed as king. And he truly is the truest of all Israelite kings. But he has his own foibles and faults as well, as we know. But the rest of the Old Testament from 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, tells the story of multiple Davidic kings, kings from David's line. And all of them have these ups and downs. Many of them fail. And what they fail in most of all is to consistently, faithfully trust in God. They just don't do it. God constantly sends all these prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and people like Zechariah. But he sends all these prophets to say, hey, don't forget God. Remember, you were nothing. But God gave you all these blessings. Don't forget him. Don't put him second because to put him second is to essentially be an idolater. You don't really worship God at all. Either you give everything to God or you don't trust him at all. They refuse to listen. So God sends judgment upon them. And the way he does, uh, executes his judgment is he sends Babylon to come. First Assyria in the north and Babylon in the south to destroy all the walls, the temple, the city, put it into ruins, and what Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, does is he takes all the people of Israel and brings them and scatters them through different parts of the region of Babylon. They do that because they try to assimilate that culture into sort of this melting pot of a culture and to eventually rid that culture once and for all and to tr create one Babylonian culture. Babylon is conquered by, by Persia. Nebuchadnezzar is overthrown and it dies, and then there are new kings from Persia. One is Cyrus, the first great king. And then there's also Darius. So the king that we see, who is the king of Persia now, is Darius. And the people of Israel have, by God's grace, and really ultimately through God, but through kings like Cyrus, Darius, they say, you know what? We're going to let all the conquered peoples go back to their land. We're going to let them rebuild their temples and worship their gods. And the hope is they'll pray for us. They'll pray for me, Cyrus. They'll pray for me, Darius. And I'll be thought of as pretty good. 
And so they're sent back to their land. This is where we are in the story. Zechariah is one of those return exiles who come back to Israel. And then there's another guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is from the line of David. So he has royal lineage, but at this point, there is no kingship anymore. So what happens is Darius sends him back, not as a king, but now as a governor. Still under the headship of the greater Persian empire, but now as governor. Well, they both go back with all the people of Israel and they look out and just imagine a 9.9 earthquake coming in to San Francisco. What would you see? You would see rubble and ruins. You'd see death. Nothing would be around. It would, it would be just chaos. Well, in Zechariah's day, there were no machines. There were no tractors or big you know, big machines to do all the crane lifting and all the buildings and all that. There were no materials, uh, resources. It was just their hands. And they looked out and they saw, I don't think we can do this. This is too hard. Zerubbabel, who's supposed to lead these people to rebuild this land, they just figured, we can't do this. This is too difficult. And so they start getting discouraged. You know, when there's a task before you that is so great, insurmountable, it just seems impossible to overcome. Imagine, say, a little child. They go to the beach and they start building this grand sandcastle. They spend all this time there shaving out all of the different, the drawbridge, the moat. They put in little creatures in the middle. They're, I mean, it's huge. And they, they build it and suddenly this big, big oaf of a kid comes along and he starts kicking everything and he breaks it all down. And of course, the little boy starts crying. Ah. And the parents, get what they, guess what they say? They say, it's okay, you can build it again. And they say, I can't build it again. It, was too, it took too long, too hard. Well, that, that's a, in essence where we're at with Zerubbabel. He's at a place where he feels as though, I just can't do this. Now, also the people of Israel, they're coming in they have nothing. So if you're a family, and some of you are parents, and husbands and wives, and you go into this place and you have this family, what's the first thing you're gonna do? Of course, you have to care for your family. So you start building your house, you plant some seed so that you can have some food to eat, you look for a water source. That takes a lot of work. <laughs> I know some of you have done some uh, renovations in your home, and so perhaps you've had to sort of displace yourself maybe outside of your house or at least in a different section of your house. And it's really inconvenient, right, to do that. Well, imagine having nothing and then having to build with your hands from scratch everything. We have a hard enough time when we have everything to, to sort of care for our family and we still devote so much of our energies making sure our kids go to school or participate in extracurricular activities, driving them around here and doing this and that. Well, that's for a lot of extra stuff. What about if they had no food and water, no, no shelter? You're going to spend a lot of time doing that. But the challenge is not, not that you spend the time doing that because God wants you to do that. The challenge is that in the process, we forget God completely. Now, we might not say we do. We might go and say a prayer here and there, 
open the Torah a little bit or the Bible and read it a little and then go back to doing what we're doing. But the point of it is that God is seeing that our hearts are divided. And a divided heart is actually a heart that does not worship God. There's no such thing. Jesus said, you either love God or money. There's no, you can do both. It's one or the other. If you put God second, you're actually putting him at zero. You either place God above everything else, or you're actually not worshiping the God of the Bible. And so the challenge for Israel at this time was not that they didn't care for God at all and hated God. It was that they were so consumed with their own lives and building their own homes and with their own families and protecting them and guarding them and keeping them that they said, yeah, but the worship of God is not that important. So they didn't build the temple at all. And this is where Zechariah comes in. That's the context, right? So God sends Zechariah to encourage Zerubbabel. He tells him that you need to be a leader who remembers God first. And to do that means you have to have courage. You actually have to, you know, the interesting thing is that the opposite of courage is to discourage. And when you are discouraged, it means that you don't have courage or your courage is waning. That in the face of it all, when the instinct is, I've experienced this before in an earthquake, and maybe it's because I'm from the East Coast. We East Coasters still, we still have the fear of earthquakes. And so when you feel that, that initial shake, you know what my initial instinct is? If my, and I, it's happened once before, I've shared this before, my family's around me, is for me to go run and hide. <laughs> That's called discourage. That is to say that I am, I'm not um, able to think outside of myself. I don't have enough courage. Courage is to say, I trust something above myself. And I can then move and act even when everything seems, all the environment seems so risky, so dangerous, still can move forward. And in order for Zerubbabel to have some courage in this context, God gives Zechariah a vision. It's a vision according to verses one and three. Let's read this. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me. Like a man who was awakened out of his sleep, and he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on the left. Now, I know this might seem strange. We're not going to go through every single point of the vision here because there's a lot. But you'll notice there's the number seven. Seven is the perfect number. It's representative of God himself. The olive trees, they produce oil. They are the everlasting producers of this oil. Representative of God himself who always gives abundantly, overflowing. He always anoints as he does with the kings of Israel. He anoints. And the very name Christ is not a last name. It's a title. And Christ means Christos, which means anointed one. And it, it translates the Hebrew word Mashiach where it's the idea of a king is anointed with oil. That's what they did. And oil would run down the beard. And so is the presence of God anointing and filling by his spirit. And so these, this whole picture is to say God is represented here. He's ever present. He is your safety. He's your security. 
and he will not leave you. We see this in many different places in Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 through 8. God told Aaron to keep the lamp burning, according to verse 8, as a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. And so that lampstand reminds Israel that God is always there. He's always faithful. He's always true. And then 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine 29 says this, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. You see, we don't think we need light so often because if you're walking in the sunlight, you don't need a flashlight or a candle or a lamp. It's sort of ridiculous. It's redundant to do that. But if you've ever been in really dark places, that's when you truly appreciate the light. A few weeks ago, uh, Sue and I had the opportunity to stay in an Airbnb, and we happened to be sleeping in the basement room of that Airbnb. And it, it had no windows. So when the lights went off to go to sleep, it was pitch black. I've only been in two or three instances where I've had to sleep in really, literally uh, pitch black instances. And it was the type of darkness where if you put your hand right here, you couldn't see even any outline of it. It was just completely dark. I don't know if some of you get the heebie-jeebies from that, but if you are claustrophobic um, or if you just have ever been in that type of context, it is a little unnerving. Darkness like that is so imposing because it's meant to signify much more than physical darkness. There's a, there's a foreboding nature to darkness. And spiritually speaking, darkness often is tied into death itself. I mean, it's like being locked up in a co coffin. That sense of foreboding, bleak, despairing darkness is what we're considering when we think that God is the one who provides the light. And here's the, here's the blessing of light. In the darkest of places, the smallest of light just brightens up that place. Second Samuel and Zechariah show us exactly this, that there's one hope in the midst of darkness, and it's God himself. The promise is that he is our lamp. He is our light. He always shines brightly. We're told in Revelation 21, 23, what is the source of this light? Listen to this. And the city has no need of sun or moon or to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. I mean, it's, we're not going to go to heaven and see this huge light coming out of a lamb. When we hear the word lamb, that's a very powerful word because lamb was slain at the Passover to be eaten as a substitute for the firstborn, you know, of the Israelites, that the angel of death would pass over that house because the, the slain lamb's blood would be painted onto the doorposts. And when Jesus came into this world, what did John say about Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then now in Revelation, we see this very same slain lamb is going to provide the light in the midst of darkness. That is to say that God is our refuge. He is the one who is able to shine forth light in darkness forever and ever. And even death itself will not stop the power of this light. So 
It's the context. I hope that makes at least Zechariah a little bit more palatable and understandable for you. Second, though, and here's really it, it progresses in its importance, is the contrast, especially in verse 6. Zechariah says, no, my Lord. And then verse 6, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What is this contrast? On the one hand, you have might and power. On the other hand, you have God's spirit. And that's the contrast that is given between the two. Might and power, human might and power, and the spirit of God and his power. The word might in Hebrew is, they, they sound similar, might and power, but there's a little distinction between the two. That's actually an important distinction. Might refers to quantity might, meaning a vast army, a million men army. I mean, that's so many people that even losing one or two or 10 or 100 or 1,000 men in a, in a battle is still nothing because of the might of the army, the, the numbers of the army, the sheer numbers. And then power is referring to actual physical strength. It's, you know, for those of you who are weightlifting right now and you, you have 45-pound plates and you're putting on, if you see an Olympic weightlifter and they have, say, stacks of four or five on the side and so much so that the bar is bending and they do the clean and jerk and they lift it up and they're grunting with all their strength and might, that's power. So one deals with internal full-on power, and the other is, I have so much of something that I'm going, just going to defeat you through numbers. And this idea is exactly how human beings, we human beings, operate in our world. If you have a lot of something, money, if you have a lot of time, if you have a lot of gifts and talents of IQ, resources, you're going to be special. You're going to be able to overcome all sorts of difficulties. I find it interesting that this time period of, you know, one virus is being attacked by the human will and might of all of our world, of all sorts of money, the most brilliant minds, scientists, pharmaceutical companies, governments, national governments all around the world attacking one tiny little virus that we cannot see, and yet we're still struggling with it. It's sort of the concept is that human might and power is like that. We can throw everything at it, but we still cannot overcome it. And that's really the temptation of our lives. It's the idea that if we accumulate knowledge and degrees, if we study hard, and if we get into certain types of schools to get a certain type of job, to be able to make a certain amount of money, so to be able to accumulate all sorts of goods and homes and vehicles, and we also maybe to know the right people, have the right connections, be able to have whole political influence. And I know some of you at work are oftentimes tempted to be that political player, the person who just by knowing the right people, pulling the right strings, and everything will work out. It's, it's so much the way of the world, the way of our flesh. And that is contrasted to the Spirit of God. Well, in Zechariah's day, no different. I mean, they're going there looking at 
all this rubble, right? What's their instinct? Their instinct is, I'm going to go there and build this house with my own hands, going to plant all these seeds, going to make sure that my family's safe and protected, make sure that they have enough food stored up as much as possible. If my neighbor asks me for something, I'm going to say, no way, we don't have enough. I don't even have enough for my own family. I got to protect my family. And then Zerubbabel, who's the governor, who's called by God to serve, he's called to actually build the temple. And so he has to go to someone like me who's protecting my family. He has to go to someone like me and say, hey, you know what? I know you're spending a lot of time building your own house, and I know you need to feed your family, but you actually have to consider God before that. Instinctually, it's, uh, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough energy. Are we that person today? You know, God is asking all of us, because you're busy, you have life to live, you have to protect your family. And he's saying, will you trust me? Will you trust your own child to me? Will you trust your family to me? Or are you so busy protecting them from the world and all of its evils that you've forgotten that actually they're never safe by your strength and might? Also, tragically, the church has fallen into that same trap because we tend to think the bigger the church, the more they're able to serve me well. Now, I remember when our church was four people. And people would come in and look and say, wow, there's four people here. I'm not going to be, I don't want to be part of that. That's a lot of work. I remember when it was 20 and 50 and 100. And the thought process of it always is how many, how much, what can I get out of this? And the thinking is if we have enough resources, if we were only a thousand member church, then we could really do something for the Lord. But we're told here so clearly, it's not by might, not by power, that God can use one person to bring his plan to fruition. And he doesn't need me and you. The rocks will cry out. The rocks will serve him. That's what he can do. He can raise up from a valley of dry bones and raise up an army. Do you really think that he needs us to be a 10,000 member church for us to really truly be faithful to him? Not at all. But that's exactly how our world thinks. And so it's infiltrated the church, our families, our own heart, that God needs the smartest. He needs our money. He needs us to be well-packaged, well-advertised, well-marketed. And once we get there, then God can use us. Or it's sort of the, you know, God, I... I have this plan to go to law school. After law school, then when I become a faithful lawyer and I make a lot of money, then I'll serve you. That person never serves the Lord. Lord, let me first do this. Let me first bury my father. Let me say goodbye. Those are Jesus' words. Let the dead bury their own dead. He's not, he doesn't, he's not mean. He just knows our hearts. And our hearts are that person who says, but first, let me do this. What they're really saying is, I don't want to follow you. I'm not going to. I don't trust you enough. And that's our inclination. And Zechariah is given this vision to say, this lampstand, 
show Zerubbabel, you have to see that God is present. He is the one who is faithful and good, and he's going to be there for you. God has a different plan. He's going to show us that his spirit can do the unthinkable and unimaginable. If you really want to see a miracle, leave everything behind and trust God. I find that the people who really trust God, they see the most miracles. And the ones who really trust God is they're often called to leave things behind. I, you know, I've mentioned him so many times, you're probably sick of hearing his name, but George, George Naaman, he just literally will go into the darkest of places and give up everything. And I can't tell you how many miracles he has seen. It's because he actually is willing to yield his heart. We just have a hard time with that. And so rarely do we see miracles because we don't think we ever need them. Not really, until something really bad happens to us. And then we say, oh God, please bring healing. Well, if we're not showing that we trust him, even through darkness, we'll never see the amazing. And here's the amazing in Zechariah. So what God does is he uses, because guess what? The people aren't building the temple, right? So guess who builds the temple? Look at Ezra chapter six, verses 13 through 15. According to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. There wasn't enough within them to be able to complete the task. It was just too big. So what did God do? He sent, first of all, the prophets to say, don't give up. And then he also, by the decree of two pagan kings who had no love for God, Cyrus and Darius, and their resources, their efforts, their conviction of saying, this needs to be done. That's our God. He takes even people, kings, he moves their hands. We never need to be afraid. I think so often we think, okay, by our own strength and merit, let's form a political party. Let's be able to uh, make sure that, you know, all these different laws are passed and the Supreme Court is turned in a certain way and the president is elected and get your con- write your congressman. Those are all secondary tertiary ideas. But if we don't have the fundamental, which is that God is sovereignly in control, then all of that is just simply human power and might. Even as a Christian, if we really trust God, we can truly believe that God can use godless people to fulfill his plans, and he often does it. Someone pointed out to me in the last message, and it's true, this cross, it's the ultimate of that, isn't it? God used Pilate, Judas Iscariot, the Roman soldiers, the Sanhedrin, all of those people who had not, and ultimately Satan himself, who wanted, all of them wanted Jesus to die on a cross. But it was the very act of Jesus dying on the cross that would save sinners like us. Evil people cannot thwart God's plan. And so we must never forget that. 
It's not going to be by our effort and might that we're going to see someone turn to Christ. You can, you can try to outthink a non-Christian until you're blue in the face. They'll never turn to Jesus. They need the Holy Spirit to change them. So what, what's the point here? What do we want to get out of this, the conclusion? The point is that the vision of the lampstand, that it is God's presence, the olive trees, God's presence, the presence of his spirit, It's not just the book of Zechariah that teaches that. It's not just the lampstand. The whole of scripture teaches this, that there is no person or place in this world who does what God does. Only he saves. Only he's your refuge. He's the one who keeps you safe. When it is most bleak and dark, when suffering comes your way, the lampstand shines brightly. But notice the Savior doesn't save through earthly power. I mean, we we see this, especially in this season of Advent. How was Jesus, God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. How is he in our lives? How was Advent start as a baby wrapped in a manger? Why didn't Jesus just come, boom, as a 30-year-old man? Ever think about that? Because he came in the flesh in utter weakness so that he could understand us. So vulnerable. Every part of his life was vulnerability. I mean, none of us, I think, had the government trying to kill us when we were a baby, except for Jesus. And then on top of that, he was poor, no place to lay his head, homeless, constantly taken for granted and taken advantage of, um, reviled, attacked verbally, entrapped, eventually executed. God would use utter, utter brokenness, not strength, not might, but brokenness. He would use the spirit of God to deliver us, to defeat. There's only one thing that cannot be truly defeated by money and power. You know what it is? Death. Death will always win. But by the spirit of God, death can be defeated. It has been defeated. Romans 1.4 shows us that the Holy Spirit would defeat death forever. It says, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, everything that Zechariah is saying, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of his holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Zechariah declares the Son through the Spirit saves us from eternal death. That means you and I, We are most safe in Christ by his spirit. Our world's mantra over and over again is safety. Safety from COVID. You don't want to let your children out because it's dangerous out there. To walk home is dangerous. Safety from really bad people. There's a really excellent book that if you're interested in this topic, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it talks about how milk cartons a long time ago in the 70s and 80s, early 80s, they used to have a, I used to you know, eat my cereal and they'd always have these missing children. I don't know if you remember that for those of you who are older. And they would show a picture of a child when they went missing and you'd be eating your cereal. I'd be eating my, and then you, know, you didn't have a phone or anything like that. So you'd just be looking at the milk carton and I'd be eating and looking at this child missing 
And my parents would see that child, and guess what would happen? Well, they would be scared, right? Do you know statistically, when those first came out, it was because of a brutal thing that happened to this one boy. Really terrible thing. But statistically, the missing children and all those things that were happening, it was so minuscule. But once that milk carton idea came out, suddenly fear started rippling through every parent. And it, it, there's a really statistical analysis that shows that the amount of parents who no longer allowed their children to go walk to school just increased exponentially. Even though statistically the numbers of children missing were very small because in our instinct is always we want to protect. We want to protect our children from any type of harm. And this is the scourge of our society today. And it also comes even in our own souls. If let's say someone comes up to you and says, hey, can I share with you something that I've noticed about your child and an area of correction? Is our instinct to be open? Especially if it's someone who loves you and loves your family and you know they do and they say, I wanna share something about your, your own son or your daughter. Is, I know our instinct is protection and that's very natural. But is there any willingness to really evaluate something like that in accordance with what God would show us through his spirit? The answer for many of us is no. Don't you dare say anything about my child because they are the God of my life. If we're really honest with ourselves, maybe perhaps that's where your heart is. You cannot protect your family apart from the spirit of God. You can create walls. You can put on 10 masks on their face. You can get all sorts of vaccines. You can keep them holed up in a little room. But John Calvin is right. If it is of the Lord, that wa those walls will come crashing down and it'll be the end. Your child is most safe in the arms of Christ by the power of his spirit. No amount of effort or energy can prevent your family and you from being safe. It just is not happen. But in the spirit of Jesus, we are safe and sound. Listen to what the Bible says. God is our help, according to Psalm 46. He is our hiding place, Psalm 32, 7. He is our helper. He will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13, 5, 6. He is our light when it is most dark, John 8, 12. In this Advent season, we are told he is the Emmanuel, meaning he is with us. He is our savior. So if you are in Jesus, empowered by his spirit, you are safe even if cancer strikes. If you were to receive a diagnosis today, you are safe. If you were to get COVID and brought into a hospital, into the ICU on a ventilator, not able to see any of your own family, and you knew you were taking your very last breaths, you are safe. If an earthquake strikes, 9.9 in the Richter scale, you are safe. If a murderer comes into your room and breaks into your house and breaks in the middle of your night, you are safe. If a drunk driver comes down the road and crosses the median, you are safe. If the devil accuses you and says that you are not saved, but if you are in Christ, you are safe. If you are ready to face death, you are safe. Oh, I hope you know this safety.
may you have an eternally safe Thanksgiving because of Christ's power and his spirit, who is the only one who truly keeps you safe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the promise of the fact that you are our refuge and our strength. You keep us safe. You protect us. May we never forget that truth. Help us, O Lord, on this Thanksgiving season to be so amazed by just your wondrous mercy and kindness. And as we come to this table, may we come with a lot of joy, a lot of rejoicing, and a lot of comfort because you are our hiding place. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And this bread and wine shows us that that is true. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.